The Wednesday morning class will start this Wednesday studying the book of Job. If you have any interest in that, you might uh, want to come to that. It's from about 9 to 11 on Wednesday morning here. Would you open your Bible with me to Judges chapter 3? I'd like for us to look primarily at the story of one cycle here in the Judges. Judges chapter 3 and verse 12 beginning. Judges 3, verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel. And they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Then Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, He's only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious, but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead." Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the horn in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. I want you to look at the elements in this cycle. First of all, we see the sin. Verse 12, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's interesting that he uses the word again. There's nothing ever very original about sin. Satan's objectives are pretty boring and predictable. He just tries to drag us back again into that sin. 
We read last week how they had gone into sin and God had sent Cush and Rishathaim of Mesopotamia to oppress them and they cried out and God sent Othniel to deliver them. But that oppression and deliverance didn't seem to really change fundamentally the heart of the people. It did not soften their hearts. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that won't be the last time either or anything even close. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. And that is that it is vital for us to break the cycle of sin. That this roller coaster of, of sin, oppression, crying out and deliverance has to stop. Now, it's clear that we will never be able to overcome sin in our own power. We depend on the strength of the Lord. But the Lord will only use his strength to overcome sin in our life when we're willing. And it's clear here the problem was not the Lord. He had the strength both to overcome sin in their lives and to deliver the people. But they again went into sin. They again did evil in the sight of the Lord. We must be willing for the Lord to break that pattern, that recurring theme in which we again and again and again and again go back into sin. We don't want to get into that rut, that predictable rut of Satan where he just drags us back every time. The next element in this cycle is the oppression. And in this particular case, God... He says he strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. That's a shame because usually the Lord strengthens his people. There's a verse in Psalm 68, the last verse of the psalm, who said the God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. Normally God strengthens his people. But in this case, because of their sin, God strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, so that he would have the power to defeat the Israelites and to oppress them. There was an earlier king of Moab who tried to do the same thing. You remember that? King Balak, back in the days of Balaam in Numbers 22 to 25, where he tried to get Balaam the prophet to curse the people of God. And Balaam would have been glad to, but every time he opened his mouth to curse them, out came a blessing. God did not let Balak curse the people. God did not strengthen Balak, king of Moab. But here with the people in sin, again, God strengthened the hand of Eglon, king of Moab. He conquered the city of the palm trees. According to Deuteronomy 34.3, that's the city of Jericho. It's called there the city of palms. And this time, instead of the eight years that they had served Cush and Rishathaim, Back earlier in the chapter, they serve 18 years now. And isn't that the way sin goes? As we think about lessons for us. So often, when we fail, when we are unsuccessful, it's because God is strengthening the hand of our enemy. 
You know, sometimes we want to point the finger at God and say, God, you just, you just didn't have the power. You didn't do the right thing. But maybe the reason why God is bringing difficulties into our life is because God is purposely strengthening the hand of the one who's against us because we've gone into sin again. And it's interesting how that they serve 18 years and not eight here because that's also the way sin operates in our life. Often when we go back into sin again, the slavery is more severe. We, we serve a longer time. We descend farther. As we talked about uh, even from chapter 2, these cycles in the book of Judges get deeper and deeper. They go farther and farther into sin every time. They just keep going down in the cycle. And that's what generally happens to us. That's why it's so dangerous for us to keep going back and back and back and back into sin. Because when we do that, the sin tends to strengthen its grip on us. And it becomes harder and harder. And it becomes an oppression that's increasingly severe. And so that's the oppression cycle. But the most pleasant part of the cycle is always the deliverance part. And the way God worked the deliverance here is quite interesting. The Lord raised up, verse 15, a deliverer for them. And who was he? He was Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now, the word left-handed there literally is he was deficient in the right hand or restricted in the right hand. Therefore, of course, that meant he was left-handed, you know, but the, the norm is you're right-handed. And so their way of even expressing being left-handed was that you didn't do any good with your right hand. So you had to be left-handed. Uh, even for us, sometimes, especially a few years ago, left-handedness was considered to be a, a defect. And uh, a lot of people my age or older were people tried to break them of being left-handed. You know, you go to school and, and they'd make you use your right hand. You couldn't, you couldn't use your left hand. Um, I, I used some of these points in some lessons in Brazil and I asked them what, what the common thought there was about left-handed and they, several people in different places said it's, it's thought to be a curse from the devil. <laughs> you know, being left-handed has generally not been looked at uh, positively in, in most societies and most cultures, we've got a word dexterity. And it comes from a root that means right-handed. Dexterity means you're capable, you're able. You, you know, you can do things well. And uh, so he was a left-handed man. Now, it's really ironic because he was a Benjamite. You know what the word Benjamin means when, when uh, Jacob named him? It means son of the right hand. <laughs> Here was a left-handed son of the right hand. <laughs> And uh, so I think there's an intentional pun there. I suspect it's his left-handedness that caused the sons of Israel to choose to send the tribute by him to Eglon. Nobody would suspect a left-handed man of being any threat. He would be accepted. He wouldn't pose a security risk to them. After all, he's restricted in his right hand. He's deficient in his right hand. He's a left-handed man. So you can just, you know, the Moabites can let him come with the tribute and they don't have to worry about anything. But actually, God chose to use this defect as kind of the strategy for his success. Because being left-handed, he put his dagger that he made, a homemade dagger, on his right hip where he could just reach his hand over and get it just like that. 
when they were when they, when they were searching Ehud, I suppose, to to let him into the uh, the throne room or whatever, they didn't even think about looking over here. You know, because everybody would always be right-handed, carry his dagger on his left hip. And so, you know, it was not even, they, they missed it. God used his left-handedness to actually be able to deliver the people from Eglon. After Ehud had delivered the tribute, he sent the other men back and he turned back and he, he said, I've, I've got a, a secret quote-unquote message for you, O king. The word message there is really a broad word. It, it means a secret thing. Now, if it's secret, you're assuming it's a message, but really, just say, I've, I've got a secret thing for you. <laughs> and uh, the secret thing he had, I think, was not exactly an uh, oral message, as we'll see in a moment. And uh, Eglon, the only words he speaks in this whole account, keep silence. And everybody knows that that means they're supposed to leave. And he's going to get this secret from, from Ehud. Eglon has one defining characteristic. He is a fat man. Um, the word Eglon, ironically, means fat calf or fat cow. And uh, he seems to exemplify that. And so uh, when, when Ehud says, listen, I've got this message from God for you, Eglon gets up out of his chair. I'm imagining that even to have been some work for him, but he does. And in that sense, isn't that an impressive attitude on his part? Reverence for the word of God. You know, Ehud says, I've got a message from God for you. And he gets up to listen to it, even though that may not have been easy. You know, we a lot of times don't show that much respect for the Lord's message. But in this case, the secret thing that Ehud had from God for Eglon was not exactly a spoken message. As Ehud got close, he draws the dagger out, and uh, Eglon got the point of that message. He, he pushed it into his belly, and he was so fat that, that his stomach just sort of swallowed it up, and he just leaves it in there. And... Uh, uh, evidently, the contents of his intestines and so forth were just spilled out on the ground, and uh, he fell over dead. Ehud is trying to buy some time, so he carefully locks everything, and then he escapes, and he rushes back to the Israelites to organize the army and to fight to deliver the Israelites from the Moabites. Meanwhile, the servants are a little worried about the fact that Eglon is delaying so long. But they go near the door and they find it locked. And I'm just imagining perhaps it was even the odor from, from what spilled out on the floor that they're thinking, well, he's just using the bathroom, you know. And, and they don't want to interrupt him. You know, you don't want to be disrespectful. And, and so they waited and they waited and they waited. And meanwhile, Ehud's able to go back and get the army mobilized and all that. And finally, they, it takes so long, they decide to see if he's having some sort of a problem, they open the door and there he is dead. And they're disorganized, they're leaderless, and God gives the Israelites a tremendous victory over the Moabites. And they're able to seize the fords of the Jordan and kill the Moabites as, as they're trying to escape back to the right-hand side of the Jordan. And, uh, and so God gives them the victory. Now there's some lessons in this deliverance that I think are important. 
And one of them is that God used a left-handed man. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 34, there's an interesting verse where he talks about the great things men of faith did. He says, for example, they quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong. Now that's what God did with Ehud. From weakness, he was made strong. From being deficient in his right hand, God made him strong in his left to be able to kill Eglon and to lead the Israelites to a victory over the Moabites. I'm reminded a couple of, of a couple of passages in the Corinthian letters. In 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, you know this passage. He says, for consider your calling, brethren, 126, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. God has purposely chosen the weak, the despised, the incapable. We often think, well, I can't do anything much in the work of God because I'm a left-handed man, or because I'm weak, or because I'm not well-educated, or I'm not intelligent, or I'm not skillful, or I'm not of an upper social class, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. Those are the very people God likes to use because it reflects more his power and his glory. 2 Corinthians 4, he talked about the gospel was in, in old clay pots, the bodies of the apostles that were not very impressive men. But he did that so that the excellency of the glory would be of God. When God's able to use a left-handed man or someone who's relatively less capable, it reflects more glory and honor to the Lord. When God uses a person who's got a tremendous amount of ability himself, it's very easy for everybody to think that he just did it by his own ability and his own strength. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, as Paul was praying to be relieved of the thorn in his flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that is the thing we really need to see is that God is glorified by using weak people in their weaknesses. Paul would have loved to have gotten rid of that thorn in his flesh, whatever it may have been. Something humiliating, something embarrassing, something debilitating. But God says, no, I can demonstrate my strength in you more through your weakness. Instead of copping out and saying, I'm a left-handed man. You know, I can't do this. I can't do that. I don't have any ability. We need to turn to the Lord and let his strength be magnified in our weakness. I want you to go back to that text in Judges 3, though. There's another point along that line as we think about the deliverer that God chose and the way that he gave the deliverance. I think that it's interesting that Ehud killed Eglon 
with a homemade dagger. And I'm reminded of the very next verse in Judges 3, Judges 3.31, after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. That's not a very likely weapon either. In fact, probably a little less likely than a homemade knife. You know, an ox goad? I assume we're talking about some sort of a stick or a prod that would, would kind of, you know, move the, the ox, the, the cattle along. Now, you know, you wouldn't imagine that it would be real sharp because you don't want to perforate the skin. You know, it's just something to kind of gain their attention and try to, try to get them moving along. Can you imagine taking a, a stick like that and killing 600 men with it? That would not have been an easy task. There would have been a lot of other weapons I would have preferred. But God uses left-handed men with homemade daggers or ox goads, or as we're going to see in some future stories with tent pegs, with jars and torches, with millstones, with donkey jawbones, and a whole lot of other things in the book of Judges. Very unlikely instruments. But what you see men like Ehud and Shamgar doing is they do the best with what they've got. With whatever it is that they are able to gain, the strength is the Lord's. And he can use an ox goad just as well as he can use an atom bomb. And he can use a left-handed man just as well as he can use a skillful, strong, capable man. And he can use you and me if we are willing to submit to him with whatever limited resources he's given us. One of the biggest struggles we face sometimes is being willing to serve the Lord when we think we're not very capable. When we see ourselves as, well, I can't do this, I'm not very good at that, and so we excuse ourselves and we just sort of try to hide. That's wrong. The one talent man only had one talent, but God intended for him to use that one talent. And if he had, he might have been a man like Ehud, who God could have strengthened to do great things with that one talent. What God wants from us is not for us to go around feeling sorry for ourselves because we're left-handed men but to serve the Lord, letting him, out of our weakness, in his strength, gain the victory. If you're a left-handed man, if you've only got an ox goat in your hand, God can use you if you're willing, but only if you'll submit to him. And if you've not done that, we encourage you to come while we stand in sight.